0: You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Ridgecrest Baptist Church in Springfield, Missouri. To connect with us or learn more, visit us online at ridgecrestbaptist.org. Isaiah chapter 9, if you have your copy of Scripture, and also Luke chapter 2. I want to remind you what we're doing. We're anticipating the Christ. We're asking of the Word, in particular of the prophets, to put like eyeglasses on our eyes. So that whatever is fuzzy and not clear as it relates to Jesus comes into clear focus. We we see in the prophets how they help us see who Jesus would be. And then I love the opportunity we have to go to the New Testament and, and to see what they saw and to sort of unpack the complete picture that the prophets saw first and that the world saw there in Bethlehem. I can think of no better way to prepare our hearts for Christmas than this way. So if you will, please stand with me as we stand on the solid rock of God's word. We're going to hear two verses from the prophet Isaiah, and then we're going to hear the Christmas narrative in Luke chapter two. And again, I'm going to tell you. In these passages, we get to see the majesty of Christ and how he is our King of kings and Lord of lords. Let's hear it. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of peace of the increase of his government and of peace. There will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now let's turn over to Luke chapter two, Luke chapter two. In many ways in my sanctified imagination. (laughs) Just trying to think through what did Isaiah see when he saw his vision and wrote those words. Now remember he was talking about all these things about a king but he was also referring directly to a child a child, a son being born. And so I I believe that Luke chapter two and verse eight tells us kind of the rest of the story. And in the same region, verse eight, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, fear not for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people for unto you, is born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, and shall we say singing, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Let's pray. God, we ask that you will hear the worship of our heart today as we continue this time of worship. And I ask, Lord, that we will be able to give glory to you in the highest because you're worth it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I want to quote for you uh, an early church father, Augustine. He says, he values not Christ at all who does not value Christ above all. Today, it is imperative for each one of us in this room who claims to know Christ to determine to put Christ above all. That seems to me to be pretty simple. It would appear to be uh, kind of obvious But I think it's equally obvious that if we were to have a moment, just you and I, to sit down perhaps just over here in my office and to talk about where we stand with God, how our relationship is going with God. My guess is, is that most of us would admit in one form or fashion of another, we would admit that there are many days when we feel as though we are not valuing Christ above all. It is, I think, the the, the way that the devil keeps us from really experiencing the power of God. He causes us to have other affections. Now, uh, from time to time, I use an old, old word. And that happens to be one of those old, old words we don't use much anymore. Affections. But you get it. When we talk about being affectionate, we know that we're talking about a very sweet kind of love. We know that it's, it's, it's a, a deep and, and, abiding kind of love. And you need to realize that, that you're made to be affectionate. And of course, I can express itself in romantic love, but I want to tell you the most important kind of love, the most important kind of affections are our relationship with God. And if your affections are straying after things other than God, know this. That path will lead to great pain. You need to have Christ on his throne. He needs to be the Lord of all. And in particular, the Lord of your affections. He must be your all. Now, I think that when we come to Christmas time, we we know that we're celebrating the baby in a manger who is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But we also know at this time of year that our hearts do get pulled in a multiplicity of directions that have nothing to do with worshiping Jesus. Materialism is, of course, I think one of the great idols of Christmas. And I just want to say this to you today. I know your time as you think about all the things you've got to do between now and the 25th, I, regardless of your age. I mean, our, our kids are doing all these programs and of course we have things at church and we have Sunday school parties and all the things that, that are pulling us in a, in a million different directions. I want to say this, our king deserves better. Jesus deserves best And we want to make sure today that we are thinking in those terms that he is the majestic one. He is the majesty of Christmas and we don't want to miss him even a little bit. The writers of scripture understood who Jesus was. It just... Infuriates me. I don't get angry often, but when I do read um, in books on the Bible and books of theology, they talk about how the whole idea of Christ's deity was something that developed later in the church. I find myself saying, do you even read the Bible? Because Hebrews 1, take a look, Uh, we have it on the screen here, but if you have your copy of scripture, you can look at it. I want you to see this because the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Listen, that is a high Christology. That's a reminder that the baby born in Bethlehem is the king of kings and Lord of lords. We need to be unapologetic about that reality. We need to live our lives as though this were true because it is true. The God of heaven and earth, the one who all of these superlatives are spoken of, radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is the one who was born in Bethlehem. We need to have just a holy awe of who he is. And if we miss Christ, as Thomas Brooks said, if we miss Christ, if we miss him, we miss all. If we miss Christ, we miss all. And we know that there are many people, maybe even in this room, who are missing not just the majesty of Christmas, but they are missing the Messiah who saves our souls. And I don't want you to miss him. I want you to realize that this passage here in Hebrews is, is again, I think it, it supports what, what Isaiah is saying about who this Jesus is. We see in Isaiah a, a beautiful picture of the kingship of Jesus, but in Hebrews we see that this kingship is exerted uh, around the universe, and we see that, that this, this Jesus was born and he died and he rose again. We see that, that he made purification for our sins, verse 4 tells us. And then he sat down at the right hand of God. See, that's reminding us that Jesus came, he was born, he died on the cross, but he rose again. Hear this. Jesus vacated the tomb, but he has never vacated his throne. Do you understand? The tomb is empty, but the throne never has been or never will be. G.R. Beasley Murray said that. He said the, the tomb is empty, but the throne is occupied. Oh, what a beautiful thought. And my hope today is that you will receive that truth to celebrate with me Christmas, because it is the very point when time met eternity, where God's glory invaded man's darkness. We know that that's the Christmas story, but I pray that God's light will invade your darkness, that his glory will shine on your heart this morning and that you will be able to profess that Jesus is your Lord, Savior, and King before you walk out of this room. And the first point we want to make this morning is that the Lord, he does indeed come near One of the beautiful things of scripture is that it paints the picture of a majestic king of kings and lord of lords, the God of the universe. But if you'll notice, all 66 books in one shape, form or fashion are pointing us to the Christmas story. And and let me say this, in a larger sense, to the gospel story. The whole Bible is about God's redemptive plan for your life, for the life of all who would believe. But hear me, I want you to hear that very personally this morning, that the entire Bible is about the God who comes near to us so that we no longer are far from him. We need the salvation that is in Christ alone. And Isaiah paints this picture beautifully. In Isaiah 9, 6, the first part of the verse is what we're going to focus on in this point. And in verse 7, we see that nearness of God. Only a few people in the history of the world, and certainly in biblical history, had kind of face-to-face encounters with God. We are told in the book of Genesis, chapter 5 and verse 24, that Seth walked with God and then was no more. We also hear in Job 38, 1, that Job experienced God in a whirlwind. And in Exodus chapter 33 and verse 22, Moses experienced God as he hid in the cleft in the rock. Now, those are very direct engagements with God. Those are very rare moments in the Bible. But we also see engagements with God that are of the visionary sort, of the prophetic sort, where like here in Isaiah... You have the prophet seeing a vision of Christ, not necessarily being directly in the presence, but seeing like the Luke 2 passage, seeing the narrative, seeing what was going to come. We see uh, that certainly with Isaiah. We certainly see that with with other prophets like Ezekiel who saw visions of God. We see that as a common thing. But I want to say this to you. If you're one of those individuals, if you're a believer that says, boy, wouldn't it be great to be like Seth or Job? I don't know if anybody ever says that, but um Seth or Job or 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 Moses and experience God I'd like to experience God other people say boy I would like to have God speak to me like he did to the prophets so that I could know what the truth is so that I would have the right words to say to my friends and to my family members that need to know Jesus I wish that God would speak to me well one of the things you're missing is like the whole new testament Because basically what the Bible is telling us in the New Testament is, is that we have within us the Holy Spirit, which is the presence of Jesus. And every prophet that spoke and right would long to have what you have. Would long, long and love to know the kind of presence and peace that comes when you walk with Christ. The prophets had to look forward to what was to come and Christ has come. Are you walking with him? Because he has drawn near. We do not have to think about a God who might be near. He has promised to be near. And that's what we want to grab a hold of. And why is it that we don't? Why is it that we do not have testimonies of a daily walk with Jesus? Is it because we just don't love God enough? Is it because we're irreligious? Is it because we we, we uh, are bad people? Not necessarily any of those things. I think the problem is, is we're distracted. And we forget. I mean, I think about every sermon I preach to you. I am not telling you anything profoundly new. Many of you have heard sermons for many years, decades maybe. And I'm not telling you anything new. But on Sundays, you need to realize, as we hear the word proclaimed, we're not living it like we ought to. We are not experiencing the nearness of God, the nearness of Christ. And that, my friends, is why we suffer. In the ninth chapter of Isaiah's prophecy, we see a vision of God coming to earth in the form of a child. A child. Isaiah saw this image of Christmas. You can't call it anything else. I mean, it is an image of the Christ child. This is crucial. You would think that Isaiah would, would, would have the vision of, of Jesus in his ministry and, and full grown and doing what we know he did. But that's not where Isaiah got to see the story. Isaiah, I believe, saw the beginning Because Isaiah needed to see something very extraordinary. The gospel story is not ordinary. There is no story like it in all the world. The praise heaped upon Jesus here is is heaped upon a child, upon a baby. It's not heaped upon the full-grown Jesus. And there's a reason for that. We need to see that this is an extraordinary situation. This is no ordinary king. It is a story of a baby born great. Born to be the savior of the world. Isaiah celebrates the attributes of a baby. A child king because he wants us to see that this is not the efforts and work of man. This is not the story of a rags to riches story. This is not the story of a man born in humble circumstances and getting to wear the mantle of a king. This is the story of a baby born as king. Born as the Savior who came to live and die for us. Look at verse 6. The Messiah is clearly God's gift. To us, a son is given. The burden of spiritual leadership would be placed upon the son's shoulders. We see that there in verse 6. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. This is upon the, the shoulder of a baby. More than that, the sins of the world would be placed on his shoulders. We know that he bore the cross for us. Who can this Savior help? Everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. Note that Isaiah says of the Messiah's sovereign rule. He says there in verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. His government spreads out to all. We know even in the Luke story that the message was not to a, a very small demographic, but it was to the whole world. Every single one of you need to know that the Lord has drawn near and we each individually have capacity to experience him. To experience Jesus doesn't require you to have been born in a church or or to have the pedigree of, of faith. It means that no matter where you've been in your life, if God brought you here today and you're hearing the message of the gospel, you can be saved. God loves you and wants to save you and rescue you from your sin. I want to just highlight a couple of things here in this passage. In particular, that sentence of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Take a look at that word government. Think about this for a moment. You cannot have the gifts of Christ apart from the government of Christ. And let me tell you what this means. That's a, that's a quote from a, a, a pastor, a British pastor by the name of A. Lindsay Glegg. And I've thought about this all morning. So many of us, we want to have spirit-filled lives. Many, many believers want to know the gifts of God. And every single human being who believes in a heaven and a hell wants that gift of salvation. But friends, you can't have the gifts if you won't receive the government. Now, that's the craziest thing for a preacher to say. Unless you understand, I'm saying the government is exactly what is said here in verse 6 and verse 7. Notice the word government, uh, pops up twice, and the reason why is because a government provides laws, a government provides a path of citizenship and of the good life, and there is no life that is better than the life that Christ offers you. Do you want to live a good and wholesome life? Well, then you need to submit your heart to the rule of faith, to the word of God. We cannot know the gifts of salvation or the gifts of the Holy Spirit apart from the government that is, the rule that is in Christ. And there's no end to what this rule extends to. There will be no end, verse 7 tells us. King David, for instance, who who is mentioned there in verse 7, the throne of David Over his kingdom. So there's a direct connection between Jesus. Jesus is a son of David. But King David's reach could only ever be measured in miles. And Jesus' reach is measured in eternity. He is our king. And it is not an earthly situation. He is king of this earth. But he is king of our souls and our lives. He is king of heaven and all of the universe. That's what Isaiah is telling us. He is putting no limiting factor on Jesus. Listen, don't ever put a limit on our Lord. Never think that he is uh, unable or that his reach is too short. Never think that. The second you do, you sin. I want you to look at verse 7 again and see. It says that he will establish it, that government, that kingdom, and uphold it with justice and righteousness. Now, those two words, when I think of justice and righteousness in my mind, because I've, I've, I've had the privilege of studying God's word for many years and thinking through this. When I hear those two words, I immediately think about the cross of Jesus Christ. I I can only think of the cross when I hear the word justice, because I know that it was on the cross that the the penalty of sin that was due to me was paid by Jesus, that, that my sin had to be covered, had to be paid for. And the only way that it could be was because of the perfect, righteous blood of Jesus, justice and righteousness. Those two words in the Hebrew are almost identical. If not identical, the same word can mean both. But, but ultimately what we need to see is, is that justice is only in the cross. Now I'm going to meddle here for a moment because we need to meddle here for a moment. It seems that in the last 50 years in our world, there have been many people talking about the topic of justice. And I'll tell you that the majority of the conversation in the world as it relates to justice has nothing to do with the cross of Jesus Christ. In the world today, we're hearing or reading articles pumped out of the press on a daily basis about all the injustices in the world. I can tell you that if you're looking for a way to be offended, it doesn't take long to find something to be offended over and to cry about a lack of justice. But let me say this. In the scriptures, justice and righteousness are connected for a reason. A self-centered people cry out for justice with no thoughts of righteousness. Let that sink in. When we are crying out for justice, we had better be thinking of righteousness. If we are not righteous in Christ, we dare not ask for justice. Now those two sentences may be going right over your head, but I think these two sentences are 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 powerful in our apologetics. What I mean by that is these two sentences could make a difference in how we share Christ with our college friends, with our friends at work, because so many people today, they are willing to get on board for something that's a just cause. Quite frankly, even in the church, I have people tell me all the time, and there's some truth to this, we want to be doing things in the community. We want to we want to be standing up for people, you know, and and helping those who are hurting. There is absolutely nothing wrong with that. That is part of the Christian effort. But notice that the world is doing the same thing. And what they say is they're doing it because they're trying to find justice. But hear me, justice becomes a self-centered concept apart from the righteousness that is on and in Christ. It is only in Christ that we can claim perfect justice because in him, we have the one who died for our sins. We need to understand that that if we, even we as Christians, if we're gonna say, well, that's not fair and I don't like that and I don't think I'm being treated justly, guess what? That just may be the way it is. But I will tell you this. If your righteousness is in Christ then the blood of Jesus will declare justice over you. And you will spend forever with him in eternity. If you only clamor for justice apart from his righteousness, then your justice will be defined by your terms. And that will not be enough to save you. In fact, not only will it not save you, it will not satisfy you. People who are looking for justice and are self-centered in so doing... They may get justice in one area, but it only takes a nanosecond for them to be upset about something else. There's always another cause, isn't there? There's always another injustice. Stop spending your life looking for the injustices and start devoting your life to the righteousness of Christ. Did Jesus deserve the cross? So why are you telling me that you've been treated unfairly. Do you think Jesus was treated fairly? Did he get a fair shake in life? Did he get get a fair trial even at the end of his life? It was all a sham. Jesus, above all, could have cried out, this is not just. But he wasn't here to be treated justly. He was here to give you righteousness. Grab a hold of that truth. The baby born in Bethlehem, He brought us justice and righteousness. Notice also at the end of that verse, it says the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The motivation for such a great offering for you is the love of Jesus. Not just any kind of love, but zealous love. I said earlier, I I use that word affection. Uh, that's, That's a great word here for trying to understand zealousness. When we think of zeal, we often think of the guy that's, you know, the the lost cause, you know, uh, going over the top for a cause or whatever. But notice this. The Bible says that God went over the top for you. His motivation was an over the top love for your soul. There are no words to unpack just that thought. To, to think, I mean, how many of you? And here it is, Christmas coming up. Um, a couple times in my life, people have given me gifts, and I've just, and they were just way over the top. You know, I, you know, when you get a gift like that, where you're like, whoa, I, you didn't see it coming, and, and they, it was given to you out of love, and it just, it just, you almost feel bad because it's so such a such a big deal. When's the last time you felt that way about your salvation? When is the last time that you just were humbled enough to even come to the altar? which very few of us do anymore. And that's your business. I'm not telling you what to do, but you know, whether it's in the pew or in the altar, when is the last time that you were just brought to your knees, humbled by the gift? For many of us, it's been a long time, if ever. We need to realize that this gift that we have in Christ is, is so big. It's beautiful. It is not of this world. In John 18, 36, Jesus said that his kingdom was not of this world. He said that his power and authority are not of this world. In Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And yet he laid down all this power, according to Philippians 2, 6 through 11, to come near to you. The Lord came near so that you could be drawn unto God. This is the greatest gift. Why have we pulled away from this blessed hope? Why do we choose to remain apart from the Lord who has drawn near? That's not a rhetorical question. That's that's a question directly to you. from, From God, not from me, from God to you. Why are you not as close to Jesus as you should be? Why? All the evidence is here. All the facts are here. That the Lord came near and he did it for you. Draw near to him. And why should we draw near to him? Well, he brings gifts. Gifts are good. So let's take a look at verse six again in the second part of that verse. And one of the most famous parts of the verse, obviously, it says there that his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Depending on how you break down this verse, there are either four or five gifts mentioned. I'm going to go with four here, okay? I think the text uh, lends itself to four because I think the word wonderful is, it could be by itself that God is wonderful, but I think that it's modifying the word counselor, Wonderful Counselor. And I want you to, to focus for just a moment on that word wonder. The word in Hebrew is palach, and it means supernatural. The word reminds us that the gift that God brings us through the, our Lord Jesus, when he draws near, he brings us supernatural counsel. Now, we like to joke on staff and everything about the books I read and all of those things. And, and, and I, I love to read and learn. But I, let me just make a confession to you. Of all the things you can read, of all the philosophies you can try to imbibe and bring into your soul, there is nothing more wonderful than the words of Jesus. There is no better truth in the world for your heart and for your soul. This is a man who speaks as no man has ever spoke. Isaiah is giving us that hint. He is saying when the the child king is born, he will be the kind of king whose counsel is supernatural. Remember, if you can, all the way back in Mark chapter 122, when we were going through that earlier in the year, as we were going through the gospel of Mark. People said that Jesus spoke with supernatural authority. In Mark 1 one person says it this way. What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. Jesus has supernatural words that will change your heart. Friends, the words you need most are the words Jesus spoke. He brought to us and continues to bring to us through his word the words our hearts need most. Whatever it is that's plaguing your heart, the word of God and the words of Jesus are your best friend. Will God's word upset you? They better. They will because it always challenges us in the flesh. But those words are not meant to hurt you or to harm you, but to bring you to healing in his name. You need the wonderful, miraculous counsel of the Lord to heal your soul, to illuminate your darkness with divine light. Let me give you this quote. William Hendrickson is a great Bible commentator and writer and thinker. He said, a Christ supplemented is a Christ supplanted. Now let me explain what he means there. He's saying, if you substitute, supplement anything for Jesus, you are supplanting him. You are are making him less than the Lord of your life. Today in the church, we supplement, it seems, Jesus a lot. We supplement Jesus with even things like my ministry. I say you know, yeah, I, I worship, but, but the main the reason I go to that church is because of my ministry there. Guess what you just did? You supplanted by supplementing. You said, yeah, I, I really appreciate Jesus, but what I'm really fired up is what I get to do. What, how I get to, to exercise my gifts. Hear me. Your gifts won't be a drop in the ocean apart from the glory of Christ at work in you, you better learn how to worship before you try to go out and do anything in the name of Jesus. We have supplanted through and we have we have we have tried to add to in the church in america we we are always up trying to reach crowds and make a difference. And many times, not always, but many times we are supplementing. It's, it's the gospel, but we've got to do it like this to, to, to be energizing and to, and to draw people in. Not every innovation is negative. Don't get me wrong. Not every methodological approach is wicked. But sometimes the, method, the methodology becomes the main thing. We cannot afford to do that. I know that, that, that the conversation about worship styles is, is something that we talk about here. And I'm going to warn you. And I, and I, I hear you. I'm not, I'm not being critical. But when you can't tolerate worship of, of one sort or another, it could be that you've supplemented somewhere and you're forgetting who Christ is and that he's the key thing. And and yeah, I, I get it, we all have to kind of find a groove and, and and I'm not being critical here. We all have preferences and I'm I'm trying to be as kind and gracious as I know how. I'm not I'm not pointing a finger at anybody because I've been, and just so you know, some of the, the people who have the hardest time worshiping are preachers. Especially okay, so I'm not a music guy, but I am a preaching guy. So like when I'm listening to a sermon, I have to watch out because what I find myself doing is being technical and critical instead of listening for Jesus every single one of us we have we have we have to be careful that we are are not making that mistake that we are not failing to worship Jesus as we ought the words of Jesus the gospel message is a miracle it transforms hearts and we don't want to supplement that in any way we don't need to we just need Jesus don't let anything Get between you and your worship. You can worship through whatever it is, but don't let something become a a supplanting element in your life. Don't do it. The second thing that we see about Jesus, the gifts that he brings, is he brings the gift of being our mighty God. Now, in the in the Hebrew here, the phrase is El Gibor. And let me just say this: Um, it doesn't matter which culture you study, which worldview you're investigating. Here's the reality. Every culture has its hero stories. Now, in our culture today, those hero stories are kind of like, you know, Marvel in DC. We've we've sort of, that's our mythology, so to speak, in our culture, they say... Um, but if you go back into the old times, you know, you've got in the Hebrew culture, you had Samson. In the early Greek culture, you would have had Hercules or Achilles in the later Greek culture. Um, and in and, and, and African society and in South American society, when you read the, the, the legends and the myths, they're always heroes. Listen, our hearts are in tune with the heroic We are looking for a hero because down deep inside, every single one of us know that we need to be saved. Now, not everybody knows what they need to be saved from. Some people are trying to save themselves from, you know, mortal death or disease or something like that. But every human being has this innate sense that we need to be saved from something. And that's why we always create heroes. And, and really every bit of, of that, that image of a hero is a way to point us to Jesus. And God's word is saying that by God drawing near through Jesus, we have El Gibor. We have our hero. We have the one who can defeat our greatest enemy, which is Satan himself and which is the sin of our hearts that he tempts us to do. We have a hero who is mighty enough to defeat even our sin. The third thing that we get by God drawing near is an everlasting father. This is the hardest one emotively, emotionally, because some some people, I think, um, because of bad experiences with a father figure in their life, um, this is the one that's hard for them. And then I wanna say this to you. If that, if that is you, I'm not saying anything here to make you feel guilty because the path you've been on um, is, is not an easy one. This is a hard thing to overcome. But when you hear God's word telling you, that, that, that the Messiah is like an everlasting father. I want you to know that in all the ways that any father, myself or any other father is failing, our heavenly father will never fail you. He is eternally perfect. His love for you is zealous love as we talked about there in, in chapter nine, verse seven of Isaiah. This, this gift is of a loving father who will be with us forever, loving us enough to die on the cross for us loving us enough to be peace. If you look there in verse six, it says that he is everlasting father, prince of peace. You see verse seven, speaking of the increase of his government and of peace, you realize that the word peace is is a major part of this equation. In the Hebrew, it's the word shalom. And you know that word probably, but it, it means not just peace, but it means rest and wholeness. The Lord drew near to you, so that your heart would not have to continue to be so restless, a couple times in life, just a few times, I have felt um, you know, drinking too much coffee or something, feeling like my heart rhythm going too fast. I got to quit drinking so much coffee, but anyway, you know, going too fast and And I know that in in my heart, you know that that feeling I've experienced it not just physically. But I've also experienced that many times in a spiritual sense. It's not just physical. It's spiritual. And and I think that our hearts are racing so often. We're we're, we're nervous and we're upset. And we don't know what to do with our next step. We're we're anxious. This is why God said, I'm sending you peace. Peace. When when your heart and your anxiety starts to run away from you, remember that he drew near so that you wouldn't have to be anxious. There are a lot of things that can go wrong in this world, but don't forget that when Jesus has your heart, the most important thing, eternity, he's got that. Lean into that. Oh, I say, a culture like ours that is in such a hurry, we need to meditate on the Prince of Peace. We need to know a perfect savior who gives us the gift of perfect peace. Jesus who came to conquer the sins of our hearts. You need this. Charles Spurgeon said, I have a great need for Christ. I have a great Christ for my need. That is, what more can one say? Yeah, your needs are great. But Jesus is greater still. And he can provide you the peace your heart needs. And so we see these gifts. Jesus drew near to be our wonderful counselor so that we could have the supernatural words of God. He is mighty God. He he came to be our hero. He is everlasting father. He provides for us the love that that only a a, a perfect father can bring. And he also brings us wholeness and peace. This is the story of Christmas. Christmas. And that leads us to this famous passage in Luke. If you want to turn there and I'm just going to uh, give you an overview here, but just think about this for a moment. It's in Luke two that we see a culmination of this reality. We see the Lord is drawn near and the Lord is, is, is bringing these beautiful gifts that Isaiah talked about, but ultimately it is about the glory of the Lord shining among us. All of these Gifts all of this presence of who god is it's all here It's all here so that you can know his glory I'm gonna tell you It's been a a wonderful day in god's house from my heart But I I just i'm gonna be honest with you. The highlight for me was when julia was singing a minute ago I mean the, the holy spirit Was in this place. I don't know if you felt the glory, but I sure did and we were singing together. I don't know if you were singing, but I was singing so loud I couldn't hear you and I didn't care. Okay. I do apologize for you in the front row. Anyway, um, The glory of Christ. You see, we need an outlet of expression. We need to be able to celebrate what he's done for us. Here in Luke chapter 2 we see some of the very first Christian worshipers, so to speak. And who are they but shepherds in the field working the night shift? If you've got one of those jobs where you're working the night shift, you know that's no fun. If you know anything about the New Testament era, you will know that during that time, shepherds were kind of looked down upon as, you know, kind of bad people. In fact, I think I remember reading somewhere where a shepherd was was so despised that his witness wasn't even valued in a court of law. So think about that, that you're, you, you get no respect at all to the point where you see a murder and you can't even be a witness. That's how much people look down on shepherds in this day. That wasn't true in like David's day, but it certainly seems to be true more in the New Testament era. I don't know what happened. I don't know. There must've been a couple bad shepherds amongst them and, you know, they got a bad rap. I don't know, but something happened over time. But if you were reading this, this Luke two, 2000 years ago, Here's one of the first things you would have said. Why is something so glorious being heard by people so unworthy? So let me answer that for you. No matter who we are in this room, no matter what our past may be. The world is going to tell us that we're not worthy of something like God becoming flesh and dying on the cross for us. But the fact that some of the first people who heard the good news that the Christ had come were shepherds, those who were marginalized, those who were disrespected, those that nobody liked. It is a reminder that the message of Jesus is for all people of all time. And if you seriously want to know God, then I'm seriously here to tell you that he wants to show you the fullness of his glory and save you from your sins. He wants to transform your life. He wants you to know a savior. Verse 11 there, who is Christ the Lord. The king of glory in a feeding trough is what verse 12 tells us. Everything about this story is upside down. From the perspective of the world. And yet the shepherd saw the mighty king in humble surroundings. God's glory in a common barn. I believe that God's glory can still show up in the church of today. I do not believe that the glory of the Lord has departed the church of Jesus Christ. I believe, listen to me, I mean this, I believe that God's glory is going to uh, be unleashed again. I think it is time for God's people to be expectant of this glory. I think that we need to realize that if we will just do our job and be faithful like these shepherds were doing, they were just doing their job and God showed up. If we will be faithful, if we will do our job as we know we can do it, I believe Believe that God will show up and his glory will fill not just this room, but will fill this town. We need the majestic King to show up. And the reason I know that's true is because too many of us are walking around too proud as though we've got it figured out. We need to humble ourselves and have fear and wonder. Verse nine tells us that these shepherds had fear and wonder. You do not experience God's glory apart from fear and wonder he is a big God he is marvelous magnificent Hebrews 1 3 through 4 all the superlatives of those two verses don't forget it but realize that the God of the universe came down and he came down because of the enmity the sin that has separated us from God and the only solution to our sinful condition is the saving blood of Jesus Jesus and when we understand that Christmas is about the King who has come, we sing along with the angels, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. When we experience Jesus, we automatically experience worship, the glory of God. Spurgeon said this Look to the living one for life, look to Jesus for all you need between the gate of hell. And the gate of heaven. As I read that this morning and thought about it some more. I realized that we are all between two gates. Every single person in here. We're all alive physically. But we're all between two gates. And we all have a choice to make. Which, which gate we're going to walk through. The wider easier gate as Jesus tells us is the gate that leads to hell. But those who hear the message of Jesus, that he died for our sins, when we hear that and we believe in that, that means that we're making the choice to go through that gate of heaven. I wonder if there's some in here that are in between those two gates. There is hope for you right now if you will trust in Jesus. But if you turn down the Jesus of Isaiah 9 and 6, the Jesus of Luke 2, the Jesus who gave up everything to come to this earth to die for your sins, then you are giving up the one thing that saves. Please don't do that. Please experience the majesty of Christmas by making Jesus your king. Thanks for listening. For additional resources to learn more about us or get connected, visit ridgecrestbaptist.org.